0: The talking for two minutes? Come what about on. when you put the sweater on him? Was I bothering you? Yeah, it took one minute. Huh? You have a long night Hold in it. You have I have to something to say there. You've him. got more than enough to say. Oh. You're driving me nuts. Just a Can minute. Can you be quiet for one goddamn minute Just and let me rest with minute. this gun? Why don't you give me a little break? Why can't you give me a little break? Wait, wait shut up!
1: Oh, why don't you shut up? I did give you a break. I listened to you talk about that sweater for 20 minutes. Worrying about the sleeves. How's it look? The color this and that. Did I say anything?
0: I didn't make it for you. I made it from Jerry, and it looks fabulous on him.
1: So, you want to watch a movie, but you don't know which? Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So, sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark for movie night. What's going on, everyone? I am Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. This week, we're discussing a film by one of the members of director Mount Rushmore, Martin Scorsese. We're covering 1983's The King of Comedy, starring Robert De Niro, Jerry Lewis, and Sandra Bernhardt.
0: The legendary and iconic Martin Scorsese, man.
1: It's a classic that I've never gotten to, and we'll get into why it's on the board in a little bit here. I said 1983 on here. I think that's actually correct, because I want to say that the release date was in February of 83, but everywhere I look online, it also says 82, which is what I've been putting on the the dartboard list for up until now. But I don't know. I don't know what you classify this as, 82, 83.
0: I heard that the post-production process was really long in this film. I think Mm -hmm. I heard Scorsese said it was like a year or something like that. So maybe it trickled over. Who knows? But either 82 or 83.
1: Well, whatever it is. It's from the early 80s. It's a Scorsese flick with De Niro, one of their, their many pairings. Yeah, I'm really excited to dig into it tonight. It's a movie that I, I have been wanting to get to for a while now. But before we get to all that, I wanted to kind of start this episode a little bit differently maybe than we have in the past. I want to start here with just reviewing the dartboard because I think we've been burying the uh, the dartboard concept in the back end of the episode. So trying to bring it to the front and uh, let people kind of get a better idea of what this show is all about. But I wanted to just run through where this movie sits on our list and, and how we got to it. So we'll run through the the whole list right now, 1 through 20. That'll be you know kind of just setting the stage for where we found the king of comedy and talking about who you know some of the other movies we'll be getting to eventually. But... Thank <laughs> you. Here is the list as it sits right now. We've got at number one, You Can Count On Me, number two, Ex Machina, number three, The Right Stuff, number four, The Big Sleep, number five, Operation Condor, number six, The Sixth Sense, number seven, Amadeus, number eight, The Fifth Element, number nine, Days of Heaven, number ten, Big Daddy, number eleven, Vertigo, number twelve, The Straight Story, number thirteen, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, number fourteen, The King of Comedy, Tonight's Episode, number fifteen, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, number sixteen, Bottle Rocket, number seventeen, The Blair Witch Project, number eighteen, White. Waking Life, number nineteen, Face Off, and number twenty, Kung Fu Hustle. So that is the current status of the board. We hit King of Comedy at number fourteen. How do you feel about the choice this week, Jared?
0: Very excited for us to be talking about a Scorsese flick for the first time.
1: You're a big fan.
0: Huge. I'm a huge Scorsese fan, and like you, this was a movie I had not seen. I'd heard it referenced quite a bit, but I did never was. Very curious to check it out. I don't really know why. Something <laughs> wasn't pulling me into it. So it's one that I'd always
1: missed, but I'm really, really
0: glad that we hit
1: it. Yeah. And I'm
0: super excited to talk about
1: it with you, man. Totally. First, before we get to that movie, let's talk a little bit about last week's because I we had a little mea culpa. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah. The, or... The Maya Copa, Maya Copa, uh, the Maya Copa. It's it's one <laughs> it's one of those in Jared's mind. We don't really know which on any given week. But this week we do want to touch on uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service because we had a big oversight. We talked about Diana Rigg, and we never mentioned the fact that she was in a, a major role on one of the biggest ep- one of the biggest shows on television in our lifetimes, Game of Thrones. She played Olena Tyrell, the Queen of Thorns, in uh, in Game of Thrones.
0: And I, it wasn't an oversight. I didn't know that. And then I saw after we recorded the episode, the algorithm on YouTube recommended to me an interview with Diana, R- Diana Rigg. and she was talking about, you know, her experience on her, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and at this point in her life, it was it's much closer to when she was playing Lady Terrell in Game of Thrones. And I was like, oh shit, I think that's I think that's the actor who plays. You know, Olena Tyrell. And then I looked it up, and sure enough, and I was like, holy shit. If anyone out there hasn't seen Game of Thrones, she is stupendous in that show. She's one of the best characters in the show, I think.
1: Love the choice of word. Uh, but yeah, no, I completely agree. She blew me away in that show, and that was before I knew she was in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And yeah, I I that was it may not have been an oversight on your part, but it was definitely a major oversight on mine. I had a note about it and just completely skipped over it. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crazy connection there. So if anyone loved her character on Game of Thrones, give on Her Majesty's Secret Service a watch because she is outstanding in that movie.
0: Yeah, she's so good. And I will say it her like seeing her that young at that age on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It really changes a scene in Game of Thrones for the better in a lot of ways. Which one? There's this great scene where she's talking to her granddaughter, Marjorie about how she seduced this other person. And she eventually tells her the story of how she did it. And then um, it's like, I was very good back then. And you are better. And it was it's so cool seeing her and, and as a younger performer, you know, just being like, Oh, she is like incredibly sexy and stunningly gorgeous. Yeah. It's just it was, it was cool.
1: Well, and it helps too that her character in uh see in on Her Majesty's is like a totally self sufficient, like capable badass, as well as being, you know, a drop dead, gorgeous, you know, hottie from back then. So yeah. like she it it fits with the extension of that character into the Game of Thrones character totally um, perfectly you know as as opposed to like if she was a bond girl in the traditional sense of just a damsel in distress you know a plot point basically
0: totally completely agree yeah
1: but anyway she rules that movie last week ruled everyone needs to go watch it especially if you've never uh, gotten into bond because maybe that uh, will spark something for you
0: yeah we both liked it quite a bit mm-hmm. but that's it for this week's Maya Bond <laughs> So you mentioned the board, Drew, kind of at the top, and leads to the first question. How did this get on the board? This was a Drew Clark choice, and you mentioned, you know, how it was something you'd wanted to see. What led to you kind of wanting to get this up when you put it on?
1: Yeah, I mean, to to start with, I, I'm just a big Scorsese fan. Uh, you know, I think we both share that. He's uh, been a huge part of my discovery of film and falling in love with film from a young age. I love Goodfellas, Wolf of Wall Street, um, uh, Taxi Driver. I mean, I love even some of his, his lesser loved things like Silence, I think, is a brilliant, brilliant film. Yeah,
0: I've been wanting to see that for some years. I still haven't.
1: Yeah. I mean, The Departed, obviously, you know, a big part of, of my high school years uh, was when that came out. And um, yeah, so I mean, he's been a part of my, my love of film forever. And it's just a movie that's been on my radar simply because of that for a long time. But I think specifically why I thought it would be a good movie to put on the board for this show is this movie gained a lot of relevance in 2019 with the release of uh, Joker. Are you familiar with with Joker? Did you watch? Did you go see yes. that when that was out?
0: I'm I'm familiar with Joker, and I was familiar of the connection. Yeah, because you know Joker generated a lot of buzz and conversation when it came out. Mm-hmm. And I had heard that from a lot of people that it was really kind of a riff on a lot of the ideas in King of Comedy.
1: Yeah, no, I it's I personally hated that movie. Um, you know, that's not going to be shared by everyone that that has seen it, but I found that movie deplorable in a lot of ways. And I think because that movie I found so fascinatingly awful. I was curious to make that connection with The King of Comedy because I wasn't coming into that movie preloaded with knowing what this movie was about. So, you know, for me, that movie stood on its own a little bit and and I kind of, I, I just wanted to tie off that loose end of like, I, you know, I wonder like, do will I feel the same way about The King of Comedy if it's doing a lot of the same stuff that Joker is doing? Um, so, I, I don't know. I just thought that that would be an interesting conversation piece to, to kind of jump off from, but, you know... When I watched this movie, it it was crazy. It was like I watched this movie twice, but in a lot of ways, I felt like I watched it three times with watching Joker because it's like the the parallels are so frustratingly close that it's like that it makes me even hate Joker more, even though I loved this movie. I want to be clear.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with pretty much everything you just said. I didn't, I didn't hate the Joker. But I really didn't like it. And I was just like, this is just trying so hard to be unsettling. And I just, I'm not, I don't like it. It's just not good. And I will say, I like, I do think Joaquin Phoenix's performance is incredible in it.
1: I wouldn't even say incredible. It's very mannered. It's just like, it's doing, it's a cartoon in my mind. Like, it's not really like, there's no depth to it. And from what I saw from there.
0: I mean, I, I, I've only seen it once, but I remember thinking, okay, the performance is good. I, I, I can see, I think based on my memory, I can see what you're saying. But I dug the performance, but I did not dig the movie.
1: Yeah.
0: And to completely echo what you just said, like after seeing the King of Comedy, it makes me dislike it even more. Meaning Joker. Like yeah. it's like, oh man, that movie is Joker is such a ripoff of this. It's not it's not homage territory here. And we love good homages in this show. We like when individual scenes take steal things from older movies. That's yeah, cool. But
1: but it's like the difference between paying reverence, like, like having reverence and, and paying homage mm-hmm. to something versus yeah. like ripping it off.
0: Yeah. I don't want the entire film to be an homage. That's stupid. And it just, it really, it really escalated my dislike of Joker for sure. I
1: mean, it, it just proves that Todd Phillips has a complete misunderstanding of what the power of these films are. Like... That, I mean, i I think Joker, I and I rewatched l- large chunks of Joker this week just because I was like, I want to remember before you
0: saw King of Comedy after, or after?
1: after after no, 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 I didn't want to muddy that experience. I wanted mm-hmm. that to stand on its own. Um, but I hadn't seen Joker since it came out in theaters. I saw it when it was in theater. yeah, i I just I wanted to remind myself, like, okay, like, how close is this because like it was so weird when I watched the King of Comedy the first time. Like, the first 30 minutes, I was just like, oh, my God, they really lifted all of it. And it was, like, it was throwing me, like, f- through a loop. And I, and I was like, is this movie going to end the exact same way with him killing someone? Like, yeah. you know, is that where we're going? And, I mean, I, I was actually very thankful that it didn't because I, I d- don't think it needs to fucking hit that nail on the head, like, again. Um, but... We'll get to like uh, King of Comedy, but specific to Joker, it's just like it proves that Todd Phillips misunderstands these movies. I think this movie is like 30% taxi driver, 70% King of Comedy, and it's just those two smashed together. And he literally just rips all the same plot points, but he covers them in a layer of grit and grime that's just makes you feel gross. And it's like these people, like you don't need that to make these people feel unsettling. What's unsettling is how calm and normal they seem in in other respects. You know that's why Travis Bickle and and Rupert Pumpkin, uh, Rupert. I just call him Pumpkin. Uh, hey, it gets uh, and mispronounced Rupert, a lot. Yeah, and Rupert Pumpkin. <laughs> like the combination, those those two characters. What's unsettling about them is how calm and collected they are in their and and how strong they are in their convictions. They know who they are and what they want.
0: How confident they are in their delusions. Right. And, and it, But the yeah. the
1: contrast of that with Joker is that this character is a person who should not be on the streets. Like it is insane that this person like you, you can't fathom that this person would not have already been picked up by police at some point. And like as a result, there's nothing to latch on There's no competence behind that character that you're like, I get why people would allow this person to exist in society. But anyway, that's my Joker rant for the day. But I just want I like I that's was the jumping off point for me of like I want to see it A, do I love this movie like I do other Scorsese movies? And B, what it like, where is the overlap there? And there was a ton of overlap, but what I loved about this movie was that it didn't go to the lengths that joker feels the fucking need to it has restraint and it has a much more like dark message to me in that in that regard
0: yeah yeah it it has so much to say i think about fame and and just culture of of fame in america specifically and the ending of the film is so Disappointingly believable, right? That it's like that's like the, such an unsettling tone. You absolutely. Know, as just as an American watching it, like, damn, dude, I could see that happening, and it's unbelievable.
1: And that's the power of it, that's what Joker misses. Um, but anyway, the
0: Joker is just, is just, is just unsettling for the sake of it. I don't, yeah, this is so, this movie is great. I'm just gonna throw that out No, in terms please. Of my yeah, tell me what you thought film. of this. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. And I could be wrong on this, but I don't think it's considered one of the Scorsese classics or greats. Like I haven't heard a lot of people our age talking about this film.
1: Yeah, it's one of the more like underrated ones or or at least like people like I think people recognize it as great. They just don't. Put it in the same conversation as Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, he's got those films that are considered his classics. Like you said, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas. Yeah, those are kind of the big three, but there are others, too. Wolf of Wall Street gets a lot of praise, deservedly so. You mentioned The Departed earlier. But this one doesn't really get brought up in that pantheon, and I really think it should. I I think this movie is spectacular, and I'm— Surprised that again, seemingly to me, our, it's a little underseen by our generation, and I think it's it's stunningly good, and I'm surprised it's been overlooked.
1: It, from a messaging standpoint as well, this movie could not be more relevant to today. Like it's a movie that has, in my opinion, only seemed to gain relevance in the decades since it came out, and like Rupert Pupkin, in a lot of ways, is like a Trumpian figure, you know, totally
0: dude. I was getting massive Trump vibes from him as well.
1: Yeah. And like a cult hero built on nonsense that you're just like, I, why, why is this successful? But there's also a level of competency. Like he actually knows how to construct a joke, even if they're not particularly funny. Like he, you know, it's just like, there's something really creepy and unsettling about the whole thing because it takes him so, uh, it just kind of just shows him as this this very likable if slightly off-putting person.
0: He's so polite, but he's being like oftentimes very aggressive, but it's it's shrouded in this extreme level of politeness, like especially after the hostage situation kind of unfolds. Mm-hmm. He's like the way he's talking to the police and the people at the network is just like laced with this like extreme calm professionalism. And politeness that's just so creepy and, and kind of funny, too, in ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll get more into the specifics of the performances and stuff as we get to the actors. But in terms of just overall thoughts of the film, too, it's it's really dark. It's really challenging in a lot of ways. But it's also really funny. So mm-hmm. I saw this this kind of Tribeca film festival thing where it was like Scorsese, De Niro, and Jerry Lewis on stage and the interviewer was asking him and he was like oh, why did you guys decide to make a comedy and I was like is this was this interviewer serious
1: I saw the same what? thing
0: Yeah I was like cuz he was cracking a lot of jokes so I don't know if he was being serious or not in that question but this movie is not a comedy and do not get me wrong there are some things in it that are really really funny yeah. but it's it is a dark movie it's the, not a comedy
1: No the best the best part of that clip is the way that, that Martin Scorsese reacts to that question as he turns to, to De Niro and he's like, I, I didn't think we made a comedy, did we? Yeah. Is it a <laughs> like, comedy? Which is like, and I think, I think that was my cue that the guy seemed like he actually meant that for real. But I, I think that brings to me to an interesting kind con- of conversation around this, which is just movies that people completely misinterpret the point of. And I think Scorsese for better or worse is as, created a lot of works that fall into this category so like for me like that list for him would be like this movie obviously Taxi Driver Goodfellas Wolf of Wall Street are all movies that have been co-opted by douchebags to justify their shitty actions yes Um, and I find that challenging in a way because these movies are so fucking entertaining that it makes sense why people can take the wrong messages from them you know Mm -hmm. specifically in the case of goodfellas and the wolf of wall street like it it does celebrate those lifestyles in a lot of ways and like the way that he points at the despicableness of it is by showing it as fun and like even though that feels true to that experience probably, is that like a good thing? I don't know. I'm curious what you think about that.
0: Well, it's, I think Wolf of Wall Street specifically is a great example. Because I, I have a friend who at the time was in real estate. And it was a soul-crushing job. He worked at like this corporation that did a lot of shady, shady stuff. Mm-hmm. And that movie came out and he heard people in the office talking about it. And like, and they were using terms like, "Wow, what a great leader he is, What a great manager and like stuff like that, and they just completely miss the point of the film and I don't think Scorsese should carry any burden for that. like he's making a work of art that's entertainment and art kind of combined, more art than entertainment, but that movie is, is obviously very entertaining, but he's he doesn't have to pay a debt to some jackass who watches the movie and thinks, now that looks like fun. No, And it reminds me too of something that I heard Bob Downey say in regards to Putney Swope, where after the movie came out, he was showing at universities and having Q&As and things like that. And someone came up to him and said, I just wanted to tell you that this movie is what made me want to get into advertising. And Bob Downey thought to himself, "Like I have no idea what I'm doing. Because that was not my intention at all with the movie. My, his intention was to show advertising as a sort of vapid, hollow, and kind of ridiculous approach to life. Yeah. Meaningless, yeah. And Which that came across to me. It, For it, sure. and It's a very funny film, obviously. But but yeah, so it's just like, you know, especially when there's even tragedies associated to it. Like, you know, something like, in a more serious manner, like the movie theater shir- shooting when the third Batman film case came out. And it's like these directors, I don't believe, bear any responsibility to once their work is out in the world, it's in the hands of of the people. And if they misinterpret it, that's their fault. No, I I 100 percent
1: agree with you. I think like you can't have art cater to the lowest common denominator. Like Mm -hmm. you can't have art that hedges what it's trying to do to ensure that the worst among us get the messaging i think like it's unfortunate that they do take that messaging from it but like again to your point like the message is there it's there to be gotten and if you miss it that's on you
0: totally it's and yeah thank thank goodness we don't have that (laughs) all the time you know we we often get complicated stories and complicated Mm -hmm. characters it's so much more interesting that way
1: no it really is well, let's talk about where this kind of sits in Scorsese's uh, whole oeuvre. I'll use that <laughs> word again, because I know you love it. Oh, that word. <laughs> uh, but oeuvre. no, I mean, this this movie came at a really interesting time for Scorsese. So, you know, he'd come off of... A, An incredible 70s. He, you know, had made some of the biggest movies of the 70s. He started out with Boxcar Bertha, did Mean Streets, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Taxi Driver, New York, New York, which was a musical attempt, actually. Um, And then Raging Bull were all leading up to this movie, which, I mean, we're talking about two of the greatest films of all time, Mean Streets, which is considered, like, one of the great early films of, like, a director, like, that, you know, is showing that they're going to be a, a, a... A master filmmaker and then he follows it up with this i mean like this is a a kind of an off the beaten path thing for him at this point i I think he's had lots of diversity in his film uh filmography to this point but this is like it's it's interesting to watch this in contrast to those other movies specifically with the use of de niro
0: yeah because i believe this was their i want to say their fourth time working together
1: correct and Um, like you
0: said directly on the heels of Raging Bull.
1: It's actually their fifth, because New York, New York, he was also in.
0: Oh, okay, cool. So it's his fifth, it's his fifth, their fifth time teaming up. And talk about a power couple. Like, man, oh man, they are one of the most iconic actor and director combinations in movie history.
1: No, I think they're number one. I don't, who else could possibly top it?
0: I mean, I'd have to think about it, but nothing comes to mind right now.
1: I mean, maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger and James Cameron to some extent. But that's a smaller, yeah, smaller try, too.
0: Yeah, any any ones that we come up with, we're probably going to be trying to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, so it's it's a incredible combo, and I still it's one of my all time shamers, Have yet to see Taxi Driver. Really? Uh, I don't. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I don't think I'm going to put it on the board just because we, or at least not right now, because we just watched this, and I'll probably give it some time. But that is an absolute shamer of mine, and. I'd be excited to see it one day, but *Raging Bull* in terms of De Niro Scorsese team ups is probably my favorite Scorsese film in general. I I just I absolutely adore that movie. It's so it's so difficult to watch, but it's amazing. And this kind of thinking about this film *King of Comedy* coming out right after that, he must have been in love with color again. I was going to bring up. Yeah, *Raging Bull* being a black and white film and it and it should be and it totally works it's an amazing choice this this movie's got some great stuff it's doing with color and mm-hmm. everything else I and mean, he just must have had a blast being having that tool back in his tool belt you know
1: no absolutely i think i read a quote somewhere that he said he on this film wanted to get away from kind of the flashy camera techniques that he was using in raging bull like he was doing a lot more you know, close-ups and, and, you know, crazy camera movements in that movie. And he wanted to, to have a lot more, like, locked-off camera in this one, where it was just much more, you know, set the frame and let the, let the actors play within it. But it seems like he put all of his attention then that he wasn't putting on the, the camera work onto those things like the color and the production design and the, the world that he was building within that frame, which is a really cool contrast in terms of, like, just that pairing of movies.
0: Yeah, and it is just a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. And it's funny, like right when the movie starts, I'm just like, oh my God, of course it's going to be good. It's a Scorsese movie. And it just like that freeze frame with the hand on the window, kind of blocking De Niro's face. Come rain or come and then shine kicks in. The music eventually comes in after the frame freezes for quite some time. And then we were all of a sudden in this title credits scene. I'm just like, god he's so fucking good Mm -hmm. he's such a good filmmaker and i was just so happy to be seeing one of his movies for the first time again and just like god he just got he's so so good about choosing what to do with the camera Mm -hmm. just everything just makes so much sense and just fits and i was just flowing along with this movie like everything was working for me it was
1: really really exceptional i thought No, I completely agree. It's what we've always talked about where it's like when you're in the hands of a master filmmaker, you just, there's a moment when you're, when you start watching one of their films that something clicks and you're like, oh, I'm just going to settle into this warm bath right now. We're going to be okay. We're going to be just fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's like, even if you don't come out of the end of the movie being like, that was great, you at least are going to be like, that was well put together. Mm-hmm. You know? Totally. Uh, yep. But no, I mean, like you mentioned the the freeze frame and the, the come Rainer can shine, you know, coming in over the title cards. I fucking that's that's the exact moment for me, too, where it was just like, oh, yes, I'm in great hands. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. And I think like that's also a perfect example of one of Scorsese's best talents, which is the way he marries music, like popular music and film. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's he's got some films with some decent scores as well. But but what I always think about when it comes to to Marty, uh, you know, in his filmography is, and I'm calling him Marty. He's, we're on a first name basis at this point. Yeah, that's well, that's um, how his friends know. Him. Yeah. But uh, the thing that he's so great at is just having the perfect needle drop, where the song is somehow he's jumping to like the fifth song you would have think thought of. And it sounds so much better than the first one that would have come to mind that fit that scene better. You know? Mm. Um, I don't know. Like, does that make sense? That seems like a it weird makes, way of putting it, but like. It makes complete
0: sense. Because certain filmmakers, I do believe, have just such a knack for that. They have such a gift for picking a song and when to put it in and all that stuff. And Scorsese is one of the all-time greats at that specific talent. I mean, he's one of the all-time greats. He uses
1: Gimme Shelter way too many times, but other than that.
0: That's true. Well, he <laughs> loves the Stones. And the Stones are, like, peppered throughout his filmography, you know. But I, my go-to answer when people—I well, like to ask people this. Like, what's your favorite music choice in a film? And you and I have talked about this in the past. But for me, it's in Goodfellas, the use of the song Atlantis when Joe— Pesci is beating the shit out of Billy Bats. It's like the most incredible song choice I've ever heard in a movie. And it just fits the scene so well and it shouldn't. And it works like gangbusters. And that song also is great. If People don't really know that song is a, is a banger, mm-hmm. but it's um a, a great choice here. And if at the end of the year we do end up choosing like a best song use sort of category for our best of the year sort of wrap up, like this will be definitely a contender for me his use of that at the freeze frame with the credits is perfect. No, it, it's it just, just a great totally song. Totally, totally works.
1: It's a, it's a total like mood setting, you know, I don't know. It, it's just combined it's,
0: with that freeze frame too. It's, it's perfect.
1: Just feels like warm butter being spread over bread, you know? Yeah. Like, Oh, it's great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And again, we, I love that we both had that reaction at that moment. It's like, this is going to be a great experience.
1: Yeah. I let out a big sigh of relief. Just like, <laughs>
0: Yeah, this is gonna be good.
1: Yeah, Yeah. but uh, no, I mean, touching a little bit more on just the way that he, the ways that he was branching out in this movie. I, I, I could be wrong on this. I'd have to give Taxi Driver another watch, and you know, you know, Raging Bull better than me, but I want to say this is the first, or at least the earliest movie I can think of his that's incorporating some element of like dream imagery or hallucination in it, Mm -hmm. and. I'm thinking specifically of the shot where he uh, De Niro is monologuing to the wall of faces and the camera yes. pulls back down the, like the kind of ever extending tunnel um, behind him. And it's like this, you know, kind of almost like big Lebowski esque dream sequency imagery, but in a really controlled Scorsese ish way. And I was like, man, this makes me really crave like a psychedelic movie from Scorsese. And I don't like from this era though, I want like 80 Scorsese doing like a whole movie of that thing.
0: Yeah. And it just, God, that shot is so spooky, isn't it? When he's just in front of those, that wall of faces, like you're saying, pretending to be showered with all this praise while he's practicing his monologue and there's some sort of weird dissonance in, in the sound or the music that's happening as it's pulling away. It's just very unsettling. And also the first time we get sucked into his delusions. Like when they're having that dinner scene the first time where he and Jerry Lewis like and, and we don't get a real preview that this is just his imagination right away. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in that fun game first viewing of like is this can't be real what's going on here? Like they're, they're, this frenzy's ass. This has to be this can't. And then it snaps out. We're like, okay, yep. I thought this was just a fantasy, mm-hmm. but I, I really loved the amount of times the movie dove into that sort of fantasy world. Never. It didn't do it too much. I think it did it the perfect amount mm-hmm. and was a really interesting element of the film. And especially to quickly establish how delusional this character is. And and it just was really kind of just kind of creepy. And then the movie just gets kind of stranger and stranger. And his decision making and his actions that he's taking get more and more egregious up until like obviously it gets very serious. But man, oh, man, what an awkward and difficult film to watch in the best way, in, in the absolute best way. And those those dream sequences are definitely a part of that awkwardness for me.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um yeah, and I and to your point like going going back to what you were saying as far as the the specifically the scenes of him and Jerry, uh the, the you know, the delusions that he has there. Um I really like that he doesn't clue you in from any camera tricks to to it being a dream sequence. I mean, you get the the language of it after the first one so you can pick up on it after that, but I love in the first one that it's like he doesn't oversell it. It's just like he, he does that cross cutting between him and then like, like at home and there and that like, that's the clue you get. And, and it's plenty. It's, it's just using visual language to tell the story.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said because they never break the visual style of the film when they go into those dreams or they have, they don't break from what has previously been established. Like the movie opens and we see the taped show of like how the show is presented to the world. So there is one of those dream sequences that's done in that way. It's when he gets like married on the show. But again, that that exists already. We've seen that this is how the show actually appears. And the majority of the dream sequences seem to mirror the exact camera styles that we've been seeing, to your point. So Mm -hmm. I totally agree. The movie does not tip its hand too much. And just like you're saying, we catch on just on how absurd this praise that he's getting is in these various scenes, but it just, it's so cool that it's this, they're not jarring visually. They, they, they just blend right in and you're just like, Oh, we're in one of these again. You know,
1: we touched on the pairing of Scorsese and De Niro over the years. Let's talk about Robert De Niro, Bobby himself. This is coming at a really interesting point in his career. This is, you know, post mean streets, Godfather, Part Two, uh, Taxi Driver, Deer Hunter, and Raging Bull. So he's already got a a slew of of Oscar nominations in his bag already. He is Um,
0: killing it at this point.
1: But it's interesting. He won for Raging Bull, right? um, So he won for The Godfather Part Two for supporting actor, and he won for Raging Bull for lead actor.
0: God, he's he's so amazing in Raging Bull. So yeah,
1: so you know, already two Oscar wins. Uh, alongside those Oscar wins, he also was nominated for Taxi Driver, The Deer Hunter, as well. So, I mean, he's just a titan in in film already, and he's only really been a major presence in Hollywood for about seven years at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it it you know, so this movie comes out, and I think what's interesting about all those those performances is they're in dark movies where he is having to be this brooding, you know stoic central presence in those movies and this movie feels like such a reaction to those uh those roles in in a lot of ways and i think like the interview that you you mentioned before i also watched that was on the the blu-ray um from uh you said it was tribeca i think
0: i think so Well, it was a film festival kind of panel discussion you know
1: yeah but i mean they they talk about in that This was a script that Bob De Niro had found and brought to Martin and said, hey, I want to make this with you like we should make this. And
0: and that was in like the mid 70s that he brought Marty the script. I want to say 76 or something like that. And Scorsese said that he really didn't respond to it at the time. Right. And I think what he was driving at is that he needed to get a little bit more famous before he could really understand. I don't think he was conscious of this, mm. but when he came back to the script years later, about the time they were wrapping up post-production on raging bull, it really started. He, he understood it at that point. Yeah. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that he had generated some fame and he could really relate to this. De Niro certainly had generated a ton of fame at that point. Right. Um, but I'm sure Scorsese was dealing with it too. And they were like, Hey, let's, let's, Let's get into this. Let's explore the toxicity of fame, the pressures of fame on the individual, and to the extremes on the out, outer world as well. And and I think they just did such a fucking good job tackling it.
1: They did, and but I but going back to kind of why I, I found it interesting for Bob De Niro is like it seems like he was. Also probably interested in branching out in terms of the Mm -hmm. type of performances that he was giving like this is completely unlike anything he had done previously to this clearly he was never known as a comedic presence in film before this it was always this very dark brooding person so Mm -hmm. um, this was a huge left turn for him in and I think it's completely freaking successful I, I, I buy every bit of what he's doing in this.
0: I've never seen from this era of his filmography a more charismatic performance. Right. That, and, and, you know, this guy is obviously a very difficult character in a lot of ways and is, again, as we've mentioned, completely delusional. But he is charismatic. He is charming. He is very energetic. He's very optimistic. He's very upbeat. Mm-hmm. And it is really fun seeing De Niro play someone like that.
1: No, absolutely. I you know, it's it's also interesting to consider in terms of what he did after this too because he clearly like got excited by doing this this weird shit. Like right after this he does Brazil with Terry Gilliam where he's just off the wall crazy. It's so fucking fun. I don't love that movie overall nearly as much as a lot of other people do. I think it's a marvel from a production design standpoint, but De Niro is easily the highlight from an acting perspective he plays like this like air conditioner handyman who just is like super <laughs> squirrely and shows up like three or four times it's really funny um and then he does like the untu- the untouchables with de- uh brian de palma where he plays al capone and he plays him super hammy and like he's like beating a guy over the head with a bat at dinner and like you know all kinds of like like he's going big with it um, and then he does Midnight Run in 88, where he's like literally like the co-lead of a, a straight comedy, just an 80s buddy con- comedy. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, like in terms of like where he decided to take his career after this.
0: Yeah, maybe. So he got a little bit of the taste of of his comedy genes.
1: Or just like that he wanted to be more playful. He wanted to just yeah. do new weird shit.
0: Yeah. And God, he is so funny in this movie. He is absolutely hysterical. And I heard someone on a podcast say, and it really like was like a light bulb moment for me. I was like, oh my God, that's so true. They said that Robert De Niro is really unfunny when he's trying to be funny. Like if he's in like a straight up comedy film, he doesn't really work, in this person's opinion, and I agree with them. He doesn't really work as like a straight up comedic actor. Right. But he is hilarious when he's like accidentally being funny in some sort of way. Well, but
1: I think it's more conscious than that. Like, I want to yeah. give him credit because I, I he knows who he is. And I think he knows how to leverage that persona to comedic ends. So it's a different type of comedy. It's not set up punchline. It's. I'm going to be a comedic foil to the other things within the scene with me. And that's going to generate the comedy. And so by playing it straight, he's actually funnier.
0: Yeah, he's actually funnier. And I think when he's playing it straight in unfunny movies, he's, he's, he's funnier than too. And this is, I think, a prime example of that. He has such a funny rhythm and way of speaking, specifically when it comes to arguing. Robert De Niro, when he's arguing in his cadence with somebody, is never will not make me laugh.
1: Give me an example.
0: Oh, yeah. All the scenes with his kind of crazy cohort friend, played by Sandra Bernhardt, who we'll, of course, get to. But whenever they're on the street just going after each other and just shouting at each other, excuse me, excuse me, no, I was not thrown out. I was not thrown out. He's just like so fucking funny to me it's like oh you're, you're so close to him why don't you talk to him what are you talking it's the to
1: strength in his convictions that he has yeah. like he he is so unwilling to move an inch on what he believes
0: and he's just again i get so drunk on his his rhythm his timing is so new york it's just really really funny and you mentioned earlier the trump vibes like the what he's doing with his hands in this film and 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 the sort of delusionary kind of freight train forward only direction he's takes. I was like, ah, oh, he's. I don't. Uh, you know, Trump. I don't think was anyone super famous at the time, so I doubt it was really intentional. But it's just a funny, interesting way to see it nowadays. Of like, holy crap, it does remind me of 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 Donald Trump for sure.
1: No, yeah, I mean, but it's it's such a self aware performance. Like that's that's what I'm getting at. Is like De Niro knows exactly what he's doing in this um and it's so controlled and i think not to bring joker back into the conversation but i think part of what i don't love about joaquin's performance in that is it feels like a lot of disparate ideas of what a crazy person can be and they it there's no cohesion to it like it doesn't all feel of a piece it's just like oh that's another creepy thing about this guy that i have to consume now Whereas this feels like a complete character that, that he's created. And the sociopathy is so, is coming from a weirdly like endearing place. You know, I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like it's, it's just like, it's so much more magnetic on screen to me than, than what Joaquin's doing. Oh yeah. Not to say that they're the same thing at all. They're not, but.
0: No just kind of can't take your eyes off him even when he's going into train wreck territory and falling apart and making disastrous choices that are are varying degrees of like awful to awkward and all sorts of things in between you just can't you can't look away because he's just he's got a certain thing about him in this performance that you're just like god this guy is such a cockeyed optimist and is so delusional Yeah, there is something charming about it, you know, but it is it is it does get scary too. No,
1: It's extremely unsettling at the same time, Um, specifically the whole sequence of him breaking into Jerry Lewis's house uh, was that is like the peak of this movie for me where I was just like, whoa, (laughs) like, is this going to go really dark or is this going to keep being, you know,
0: that was one of the times where I was tricked a bit. Thinking we were in a dream sequence again. The way it starts, him and the girl are just rolling up to the house. Mm-hmm. I thought this was going to be another one of those. Where like, oh, he's going to, oh, Jerry's going to be like, oh, Pupkin, you're beautiful. Or like something crazy like that. Right. And then I, I slowly start to realize, it's like, oh, no, this is this is real. He somehow figured out where Jerry Lewis lives. And it just showed up unannounced. And I was like, oh, my and God. And he's brought an so- accomplice. He's brought this poor woman who has no idea. And I'm just like biting my fist. Yeah. The scene is so brutally awkward. We were talking recently about like how intense that scene in Alien is when the guy's walking around the room with the chains. This is like the awkward version of that in like mm-hmm. film history. It's like the most brutally awkward scene I've like ever seen.
1: It's so bad what I really love about that scene is that it brings into focus the point of this movie, which is to me that this character is able to do what he's doing is able to achieve the success that he eventually achieves because of white male privilege. It's highlighted by Diane Abbott's presence in the scene because obviously she's a black woman and Clearly, like, if she was in that situation, if she had been the one to do that, none of the rest of the movie happens for her after that. That is the end. Like, she is in jail. Like, she is, like, her life is ruined. Whereas Rupert Pupkin is able to continue on his journey of, you know, I'm going to be successful, you know, c- you know, whatever it costs. Um, and he's able to just stroll into this man's house and completely get away with it
0: that's I don't know why they didn't call the cops. Like I don't understand that. like they kind of accept it a bit too easily. maybe like like Jerry Lewis's character is obviously very upset and they have that argument. but it's like, dude, this is unacceptable. and I'm surprised he didn't press charges. the The stuff like De Niro kind of like does and like kind of gets away with is is shocking in this film and just and that's like the pinnacle example of like so they didn't they didn't arrest him like he just broke in and is it because jerry lewis is trying to cut him some slack or like i don't know what it is but that oh my god i mean i didn't get any of the white privilege stuff from it but it it was still just like I still was left wondering, like, how is this guy?
1: Well, but just look at Diane Abbott's reaction to that scene. Like, she's immediately apologizing, saying, I had no part in this. I didn't like I didn't want to do like it's it's she knows that she could never get away with this. Like,
0: well, I think I think that would be anybody's reaction. Any sane person would be like, like, if it was if it was me back there, I would be like, I did not. I'm so I would have the same reaction as her.
1: Sure. I'm just saying, like, it's a conscious choice to cast her in that role, I feel like, to to highlight that even further. Like, just the fact that, you know, like, even if it was, you know, a white woman in that scenario, like, yes, she probably would have a similar reaction. But would the effect be uh, to, to really highlight how much Pupkin is getting away with? To me, it doesn't it doesn't work quite as well. Like the fact that she's black makes it that much more. Uh, intense of a situation for her. Huh.
0: I can see that. But um, did you hear about that scene that the whole thing was improvised? No. Isn't that insane? The entire... There wasn't a script. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they had beats maybe, but they shot it over the course of five days, the actual confrontation with Jerry Lewis and De Niro. And I think the reason it took five days was just, they were trying to figure it out and they were doing it real loose and they're doing it all improv and holy hell, does that scene work well mm-hmm. for something? It seems constructed. Like it's it just, it, it works great. And I can't believe the, the the gold nugget they were able to find through that sort of approach of improvising your way through this very complicated scene of, of Pupkin's kind of relentlessness and like, but he keeps kind of touching there's all these like invasion of privacy moments mm-hmm. that just kind of hit me like a little bit of like a an electric shock like he's just kind of chuckling along like like he's supposed to be there and he keeps kind of tapping him tapping jerry lewis on the shoulder like they're good friends and jerry lewis's body language is shouting from the rooftops like this is not what you think it is we are not friends you are a stranger crazy person who's broken into my home so every time those shoulder taps hit it was just like a punch in my stomach Like god dude this is so bad and a couple of times in the performance De Niro has these split second moments where he snaps out of his charm face and but then he dives right back into it and it's it's so subtle but I think it's like it's showing that this person does have some awareness of what's actually going on here. Mm-hmm. And but it, it's just it's just really fucking subtle and really cool. And and I'm sure we'll get to Jerry Lewis, but he is stupendous in that scene as well. Yeah. And that whole I, I I kind of agree that is one of the pinnacles, if not the pinnacle of the movie, is that is that scene.
1: Going back to what you're saying about it being improv, that's interesting to me because I feel like a lot of the iconic scenes in Scorsese's movies are at least somewhat improvisational in terms of, you know, I'm thinking of like Goodfellas. There's a bunch of scenes of just gangsters sitting around and there's all kinds of overlapping dialogue. Like in no way could that have been fully scripted and and planned out. It was clearly like they had points they were trying to hit and they're like maybe moving through those beats, but it feels so off the cuff and natural. Um, I mean, I know for example, like, a lot of the stuff at the dinner scene after they kill billy bats and they're uh with um uh tommy's parents and you know they're it's it's martin scorsese's mom playing the character and they're you know looking at the painting like oh, so much of the dialogue in that scene is all improvised um and like all that stuff i don't know it, it lends this very l- like lived in feeling to all of scorsese's films
0: absolutely and I know that in Goodfellas, the Joe Pesci, the f- really famous scene of Funny How was discovered through improv. I think they I, I don't
1: think they might that have done was, it a few times, but yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it was discovered in improv in rehearsals. Uh, but still, it's 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 clear to your point that Scorsese really does like to use improv and and he does seem super selective with it. Like, he de- it's not, like, Curb Your Enthusiasm, where, like, everything's improvised. I think he is really good at finding these moments of, like, let's try it here. Let's take the script out. Let's take the words out from under us and just try to live in the moment. And he seems he seems to have a real knack for deciding when to do that.
1: I also think, like, that kind of ties into his use of, like, non-actors and stuff, too. Because so many of my favorite things in this movie are these, like, little side characters who are just you immediately know who they are just from how they talk and how they carry themselves. So I'm thinking of like, it's always these crusty old, uh, like authority types. Right. So like the security guard at the building who leads him out and like the security guard at the, I guess it's a lot of security guards in this movie, <laughs> security guard at the, uh, the stage for the show. Um, but like the way that those guys talk and like, they just feel so lived in New York that, that mm-hmm. they, they've, almost can't be actors in my mind.
0: Yeah. Oh, that cabbie. That cabbie who talks one, to Jerry yeah. Lewis as he's walking down the street. And it was like, you should have example. me on the show. It's like, that must be a real New Yorker. That must just be a real guy.
1: The woman who accosts Jerry at the uh, the payphone. I, mm-hmm. that, that one's more of an actor, but that scene kills me. <laughs> when Jerry walks up, you should get cancer. I hope you get yeah. cancer. <laughs>
0: After he was pretty nice, he was pretty. <laughs> he gave her the autograph, he
1: was pretty. He just guided. didn't want to talk to her son on the phone. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah. that all those kind of side characters, I just, I they, the world that Scorsese puts together is always interesting to me.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the, I really did love those, those scenes on the street. Like these arguments are just happening between the two, the two characters, the two crazy people, like right in the middle of the street. And Scorsese does seem to have a, a, a fascination with 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 showing the sort of – the complete lack of privacy in New York, but also nobody gives a shit. Like there's a lot of scenes in Raging Bull and obviously in this film too where you've – like the neighbors are shouting or you're shouting and you're, like all of your emotions are just like on display to everyone because these things just happen in extremely public places and that does seem to be – a big characteristic of how Scorsese perceives and likes to show New York. It's like all of your stuff is just, is out in the open air. for Everyone to see again, <laughs> like the good the and the bad arguments. It's are all the there. Yeah. Um, how good though? You mentioned that security guard. How good are those waiting room? or uh, the reception area confrontation scenes are just oh, so good. They're so unbelievably again, awkward and so well done. And De Niro just keeps coming back. And I mean, within the scene, (laughs) like you keep thinking the conversation is over and he just keeps tugging at the threads and he just will not, he's such a bulldog. He
1: won't let it go. It reminds you of those conversations where you're just desperate to get away and Mm -hmm. they keep pulling you in with one more thing. And you're like now, but I got, I got to do this thing over here. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. But but one more, one more thing. Sorry. One more thing. When will that be? That was
0: my. That's my favorite of his. When she gets the tape, and that woman, that character, her name's Kathy Long. She's played by Shelley Hack. She is so patient with him, so kind, gives him really good advice. I totally believe her when she says, like, keep working on your material. When you're ready to show it again, we'll send someone down. Like, and we'll 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 take it seriously. And he's just so, he just can't accept this answer. It's like, it's not nearly enough for him. And it's, it's a gift. She has been putting up with his nonsense for the past several visits. She listened to the tape like, and he just will not let it go. And those, I just wanted to give a shout out to her because I think she's so good in those scenes. Oh yeah. It's, it's, she's just plays the person whose patience is dwindling, but is still being civil. She plays it perfectly and so naturally
1: I think that receptionist is also perfectly cast she just I I don't I don't have her name in front of me but and I and it'd be hard to dig through the the list but um I just wanted to give a shout out to that because I think her her disbelief at him continuing to come in is really funny to me
0: especially the the time right before she calls security where he's had the meeting this cannot go further anymore they listened to the tape, they gave it back, he got his feedback, and he sits back down. And she is just completely baffled and is just like, Are you are, what are you are you waiting for any and he just like sits there, and like, No, 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 I'm just I'm just waiting. I'm like, well it's not a waiting area. Yeah, God, she's so she's so so good. You're right. She's she's awesome.
1: Yeah. Um no those scenes are great. Going back to the security guard, I just I love that Scorsese loves these characters that are just like they're authority figures, and they're very calm about how they dictate authority. The way that that guy says "office policy dictates," it's just yeah, like he's it's very out of his <laughs> hands.
0: He's so he's so kind. Nah. We'll, we'll talk on the way. We'll he talk does on the he way.
1: does this like hand raise, this like open palm yeah. like hand raise, and he's just like no, no, no.
0: And then I love when they get to the glass door like to leave the reception area mm-hmm. and and uh de niro's like after you he's like no 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 after you like really making sure he gets this guy out like you're when staying in front of me and i am not letting you out of my sight till you're out when of the he's building.
1: actually uh like carrying him out and and uh mm-hmm. rupert is like you'll be hearing from my lawyers and he's like yeah. i hope you get i hope they get my name right <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I'm going to talk to Jerry. I'll mention your name specifically. And what did you think of that little, speaking of when De Niro gets thrown out, that little visual gag where they do that old timey like joke of someone running by the camera and like, yeah. also like a Scooby-Doo joke, you it's know? Keystone like people...
1: Cops is what is what it's oh, referencing. That... Yeah. Um, yeah. OK. Yeah. It's I,
0: I, That worked for me, man. I got a chuckle out of it.
1: It's funny. It, I, I always think that's funny. Uh, except when Joker does it at the end, as another fucking reference to this movie. Jesus Christ, dude,
0: that movie is is yeah, man, it's aging like milk in the sun.
1: Yeah, it's so bad. I I just was looking through my notes though, and I I forgot to mention my favorite of the security guard lines. Not not that security guard, the one later in the movie that they have to distract so Rupert can sneak onto the stage. Mm-hmm. That guy, <laughs> the way he is denying that guy to come in is so polite but also just fucking get out of my face man <laughs> yeah. he, he goes no sir only authorized poisons are allowed past this door <laughs> poisons the way he says poisons is yeah. so great
0: mm. yeah he is He he's a bit of a scene stealer you know I loved all the uh, like the FBI guys and all their kind of discussion of how they're going to handle this hostage situation there's one guy who seems to have a thick like Massachusetts accent and it's just, just really good sounding voices and all this kind of stuff bouncing around the room in a really kinetic way. And that scene in general just is the perfect length. We're in that world and peeping in on that conversation for the exact right amount of time where we get what some of the theories and ideas swirling around how to handle this are. And then we're just out. And the lawyer is like threatening to sue and all this shit. And it's just all really chaotic and really, really funny and, and, yeah. and great, I think.
1: No, I love all that stuff, and that that lead FBI guy cracked me up too, because he's the same type of person that we're talking about.
0: But yeah, I love all the the real seeming performances and people in this movie that just seem they seem legit.
1: Yeah. Well, we haven't talked about Jerry Lewis much yet, um, but Jerry Lewis is a legend of comedy, so we we gotta fucking talk about him a little bit. Uh, this is probably the only movie we'll ever watch that he'll, he'll be in. So, um, you never know. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe maybe we'll go back and watch the original Nutty Professor because he was the original Nutty Professor, uh, which is really funny. So anyone who doesn't know that the Eddie Murphy movie is a remake.
0: Mm. Yeah. Hollywood comedy icon, Mm -hmm. you know, back in the day, used to team up a lot with uh, with Dean Martin. So they were Mm -hmm. known as as Martin and Lewis It's kind of like a comedy team, did a bunch of movies together And I remember I was shown when I was really young, like I'm talking like six or seven, some some Jerry Lewis films that were rented from like the local place and watched. And I remember really enjoying them, thinking they were really funny. Thinking about when this movie came out, like the generation watching King of Comedy would have been hyper aware of Jerry Lewis's impact on society, art, culture, comedy, and lots of things.
1: Yeah. Well, apparently this role was originally conceived with uh, Johnny Carson in mind and Scor- Sc- Scorsese actually wanted to cast Johnny Carson. But, mm. you know, in terms of I'm like glad a, they didn't, I'm glad they didn't, too, because I think like it's, it's always more interesting to me in a movie like this where you get someone like I don't know. I think late night talk show host is such a such a type you know, and there have been so many like comedic personas and, and presences that that have been talked about as potential late night talk show hosts in the past. And Jerry Lewis is absolutely a part of that, you know, group of, of people from history, all men for the most part. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, like it, it makes total sense to put him in this role the same way it made total sense to put Gary Shandling in the Larry Sanders role on the Larry Sanders yes. show. Um, because he's just a guy that like could have been that that persona mm-hmm. in a different universe, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. And instead, just decided to lampoon the mm-hmm. whole thing. That show is great. I haven't seen all of it. I've seen probably twenty, thirty episodes. Mm-hmm. It's exceptional. I, I I really think it's it's a great show. And and for my money, underseen by our generation.
1: Yeah, but anyway, I mean, Jerry Lewis is like he's perfect casting for this kind of role. He he, I think he's incredible in this movie.
0: Outside of one scene, he plays everything so straight Mm -hmm. and so believable. I didn't know he was that good of an actor when it came came to just playing things normally. I didn't like. I understood that he was a, a, a supremely gifted physical comedian and very goofy in a lot of ways as like was kind of in for that sense of humor at the time. But he's just a great dramatic actor, too. And he has really subtle faces and moves. The one time he kind of breaks out of it is in one of those dream sequences when he has the tape and De Niro's fantasizing about the praise he's got to get from. He's like, you've got it. And he just starts like shaking De Niro by like the scruff (laughs) of his neck. And it's just like, what is happening here? And it's really funny. And it's so random. And then he like puts his hands all over his face and like smushes it a little bit. And it's just like, God, that it makes no sense. But it's really, really funny to me.
1: Yeah. No, it's perfect. And yeah, you're right. I mean, that's basically the only I mean, obviously, outside of the the little glimpses we get of him giving the monologue, um, it's really the only comedic bits we get of him in this movie.
0: And uh, I mean, there are others that are really funny, but he's not playing a, a huge role in the humor. Like thinking of like the cue card bit when right. De Niro is cycling through what he wants. But uh, he's delivering
1: those reactions so perfectly
0: he's and he's just like like when it's blank card he's just got like his fingers on his brow and he's just like you got a blank card there and it's just so small and he's playing the nervousness of the situation so perfectly but it's really really funny the way he does these really subtle tweaks on things and we also get to see how iconically for lack of a better word he moves like he's got we talk about it a lot, you and I, actors who have great distinctive walks. You know, someone I think of is like Josh Brolin has got a very specific way that's that interesting. he walks. I cannot
1: imagine his walk at all.
0: Think of how he walks in No Country for Old Men. And I was starting to watch that, um, the Front Range show or Outer Range, whatever outer it's range, called. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit, he's doing the same walk. And I was like, oh, I think that's just his walk. I think that's just how he moves. And... You know, So there's a lot of people who move great, but Jerry Lewis almost sashays, and he has this sort of very graceful, almost f- feminine sort of way that he moves that's really, really funny for this character, and we even get to see him break out into a run at one point, and it's just like really funny watching him run, and it's just like, oh, that's right. This guy is a comic genius.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's also funny because like they they also they show him as being a big dude too. Like he's he's a like he towers over De Niro in this movie, Mm -hmm. Um, at least in just like general body size and like he's got a couple inches on him. But like he's an imposing figure. So like you're right. Like that the femininity like of like for you know (laughs) like of how he walks and moves contrasts with like this this big burly presence too in other scenes and it's like it's such a funny yeah he's you're right he like is so unique in how he moves
0: totally it's a very strange juxtaposition and it it really works for me and and two like scenes like when he's tied up to the chair like he's it taped up he's got so few things that he can do in his performance but he still delivers everything across like this chick is crazy and I just need to try to survive this situation and just be quiet. And it's, but it's all on his face as he's, he's really, really good in this.
1: He is. I read an interesting bit of trivia. Uh, for, I think it was just on the Wikipedia page. It's not, I didn't dig deep people. Grain of assault. <laughs> he uh, apparently he was in, I'll just read this bit. Lewis said he was invited to collaborate on certain aspects of the script dealing with celebrity life. Um, he suggested an ending in which Rupert Pupkin kills Jerry, but was turned down. As a result, Lewis thought that the film, while good, did not have a "quote unquote" finish. Mm. I thought that was interesting because clearly, going back to the Joker connections, Joker ends with you know Joker killing the De Niro talk show host character in that movie. It almost feels like again a point where people are kind of missing the thread on this a little bit of like, that's not, that's not the point.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I'm so glad the movie didn't end that way.
1: Me too. But it's interesting that Lewis had that idea of all people. Yeah.
0: That he thought that would be the way to go. He wanted to
1: go darker with it as a comedic person. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Crazy. I really want to talk about Sandra Bernhardt's performance. Please lead off. I don't know if someone can get in the kennel from one performance. I think this is the only performance of hers that I've seen, at least that I can recall. She is unbelievable in this movie. So good. And is skyrocketing the charts for my favorite performance that we've covered so far. She's in that pantheon. I am so floored by her in this movie. Tell me what you love about it. She portrays sort of manic craziness in such a believable way she's so creepy she's so funny she's so scary and so unpredictable and unhinged Mm -hmm. and i just completely buy everything about it and i think it's stunningly good
1: i completely agree it blew me away and i i can't believe that i haven't heard about this performance or like really her as an actor at all um i mean i've scrolled through her her filmography on on imdb and quite honestly there's just not a lot of starring stuff it looks like i mean her other big film in terms of like being in a starring role um was in uh uh hudson hawk but i mean that that's not even a starring role that's a supporting role i mean she really didn't get a a central performance it seems like after this to to shine and that's really a shame um i mean she this was basically her debut on screen she has four credits before this two of them are tv series one is a voice uh that is just labeled as voice for a movie not even like a named character and then one uh one other movie right before this but it's basically a debut performance
0: which is crazy because that was the same thing with kathy i want to say moriarty is her name in Raging Bull? Mm-hmm. She was pretty much an unknown. This is her first time doing a movie. So again, this sort of through line, Scorsese, that had this ability certainly did then of detecting greatness from like someone who does not have a lot of work history or, or yeah. stuff put on film.
1: Well, it's interesting. So I, I was reading on, on Wikipedia that at one point this movie was almost made by Bob Fosse, actually, who... In the mm. pre-chats, I've been talking a lot about because Blank Check has been covering them, uh, and I am fascinated with Bob Fosse as a filmmaker. And apparently, he was going to make this, and it was his idea to cast Sandra Bernhardt. So she was coming up through the comedy scene in New York at the time, and I guess was you know getting a lot of acclaim that way. She worked with Richard Pryor, it looked like for a bit so you know she was she was a big deal on the comedy scene at the time it seems like she just hadn't had a break into you know uh major film acting but uh yeah bob fossey ended up making star 80 instead that's a whole different story which is a, a wild fucking movie but yeah it's cool that scorsese picked up the mantle there and was like no, no no this is the right person for this role
0: yeah dude how great is she did were you terrified of her like I
1: was? Yeah, that whole scene at the dinner table is horrific. Oh my god, it's so scary
0: and unsettling and yeah. good god, it's just, it's just frightening. The Downright way that he lights that
1: scene is is so like scary too and it like it feels like a vampire movie almost like Yeah, and her the way she kind of just
0: jumps from thought to thought and repeats herself and is just like
1: And she f- immediately flips from like hypersexual to violent to, you know, like, like self-hating to like, like she's just all over the place.
0: Yeah. And she's still, she's saying that stuff about like, you know, I just think about you during the day and like, you know, like I wonder if he's doing the same thing. I just love you. And we're golfing together. And she's just like all over the place. And you're like, this woman is batshit. And it, it scares the hell out of me. Poor Jerry Lewis is just taped up and can't do anything about it. It just has to deal – it just has to sit there and take this in and just try to survive it. Try to not do or say anything that will set her off any further. And it's so – like it must have been difficult for Jerry Lewis to be on the receiving end of that energy even just in in the reality of doing the scene. Like if he's really taped up, he really can't move – and this woman who is i think it seems like was also a very unpredictable actor and was was doing was tapping into that energy a lot and they didn't really know what she was going to do mm-hmm. like that must have been really taxing and really difficult to to sit through and take in just on a practical level
1: on a certain level you if you're really in the scene you're probably feeling a little little terrified of that like just watching that happen in front of you yeah like you're saying it's it's Oof, really yeah. unsettling
0: yeah but yeah she Absolutely floored me. And again, even though she's completely terrifying in that scene, and she does elicit some nervous chuckles from me mm-hmm. in that scene, there are other scenes where she's just blatantly funny. Like when she's having him try the sweater on. Yeah. And then she, her and De Niro start getting in an argument about, like, the sweater. And she's just so <laughs> funny. Would you shut up for one goddamn minute? You're driving me crazy. And she's just, like, cracking me up, dude. She's hysterical at times in this but movie.
1: also that the the visual comedy of that of the sweater not even being finished and just being sleeves and giant holes <laughs> and it's, it's so fucking She's so absurd. proud of it
0: i love red on you i think it looks great it's great to see them more <laughs> casual too and then to is like we've talked i let you talk about the sweater for like 20 goddamn minutes and again it's a beautiful scene of them arguing like god they drag me up when they're fighting
1: it's so funny Going back to the Bob Fosse version of this movie, can I tell you the other two castings, like for the Jerry role and the Rupert role that you oh, have in mind? Yeah, please do. So alternate universe, we could have had a Bob Fosse-directed version of this with Andy Kaufman as Rupert Pumpkin and Sammy Davis Jr. as Jerry, Jerry Langford.
0: Wow. Probably would have worked.
1: It, I, I'm not... I don't want this to go away, but that sounds really fucking interesting. Yeah. Especially the Kaufman as as Pumpkin
0: part. Yeah. Just sort cuz he he I could see that working really well. I mean, I don't know Kaufman super well. I know what he's sort of famous for. I've never seen a lot of his work out of like say Mighty Mouse on Saturday Night Live. I haven't seen a lot of his actual stuff. I've seen a, a lot and heard a lot of people interpreting his work, sure. And I know he's recognized as a sort of off the beaten path, comic genius who went against the grain all the time, so I could see him being a really good fit for for Rupert. Uh, but I agree with you. I'm glad that we live in the reality where we have this version. The other reality can have the one, the Bob Fosse version. I'm sure it's dope too, but I can't imagine having it the reverse discussion.
1: What about the De Niro Scorsese version of that movie? If we were there, I don't think we would
0: buy this version. If someone pitched to me. There was another version of this and De Niro was going to play Rupert and Jerry Lewis, who I'd be like, nah, nah, nah. De Niro? (laughs) In this role? De Niro? But this guy has to be charming and dedicated and he's the reclusive type. Like, it it doesn't really work on paper, but goddamn, does it work in reality. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm really glad that we both dug this movie. I'll need time with it, of course. It's a really complicated film, but I think it's going to be probably land somewhere in my top five Scorsese movies of all time like I I was shocked at how again from my perception of our generation this movie is not talked about enough this movie is incredibly well done well made well acted I love pretty much everything about it it's it's gonna be one I'll be revisiting a lot moving forward
1: yeah, no, me too. I I bought the Blu-ray ahead of this episode. I've started. I started by. doing that. I'm, I'm like, I really want to beef up my my physical media collection. So what a
0: cool way to do it too through this podcast with
1: uh, with purchasing this and the James Bond collection last week. I have fully maximized my shelf space on DVDs. So I'm now in the market for shelving. Yeah, it's, it's been a fun. I, I'm really enjoying this as a hobby. It's like I, I feel very proud of my collection right now. So, yeah, as it's, it's
0: coming along, dude, I love
1: it. Yeah, but anyway, this is, a, I was, I'm really glad to own this because, like you said, like I want to revisit this. This is going to be one that's going to remain one of my favorite Scorsese's for years to come. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited that we got to cover it. Yeah, me too. Me too.
0: Any other sort of like kind of last bullet points or, or closing issues you wanted to hit
1: before we? Get a new nominee on the board. I love the butler at Jerry's house. I, yes, he's, he's so great. great. And and what I love about so that funny. is like I was really worried when I when I saw what they were doing there that they were going to make a joke about him being you know an immigrant you know an Asian immigrant and like make some sort of like you know uh, really. Bad joke there about it, but it's—he's it, actually just a sweet guy who's trying to manage this situation is completely out of his depth, and like it's just—it's just so funny watching this guy be like, "I'm having a heart attack. I want to get these people out yeah. of here. I don't know what to do." They're touching everything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just a very funny phone call scene. Did you know that that door thing was a blooper? No. So when he gets to the door to let Jerry Lewis in, he struggles with the door for a little while. That was a mistake and an accident. And Jerry Lewis rolled with it when he walked in. and was like, can't you open the goddamn door? And they decided to keep it in the film.
1: That's so great. I love that. Yeah, because it's awesome. He's like, he's like, I've been out here for like eight minutes.
0: <laughs> Which had to be an absurd exaggeration, you know?
1: Oh, 100%. <laughs> but I, really I love the idea that he was just sitting out there like trying to get in for eight minutes and <laughs> couldn't figure it yeah, yeah.
0: Did you catch that a previous dartboard movie star got a shout out in this movie. Who is that? So when he's getting ready to make his tape and they're doing the Jerry Landon show and he's kind of like faking the intro, he's using real audio from the show. And it's like tonight's guest, blah, blah, blah. Ben Gazzara, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Oh, Ben Gazzara. And I wonder if like Scorsese, cause I've heard he's such a kind of perfectionist and, like wants control of not to say he's a control freak, but he's very detail oriented about his films. So I'm thinking he must've had a lot of fun with like choosing the names that came in the, in the show. And they're like, I want to give a shout out to Ben Gazzara. You know, maybe he loves Ben Gazzara. Maybe he loves killing a Chinese bookie.
1: I, I mean, I got to believe they run in the same circles because Scorsese yep. was uh, a huge um Fan and friend of John Cassavetes.
0: Right, right, yeah. So that must have been, must have been a bit of a shout out there, which was cool. Yeah. We talked about how much you liked, and I also like the FBI guy. When they're doing that, like before he gets on the show, they're doing that last confrontation, and the other FBI guys like, "I'll color your face," you know, threatening to, like punch him or something. And was like, ha ha, like points at him, and it's like, I really should get made up though. And then it just like smash cuts out of there. It's like this is so funny. It's, it, this movie really does just have hilarious moments, even though it's not a lighthearted movie at all. That
1: highlights one of my favorite things about Scorsese, too, which is just hit the strength of his editing. Um, and actually, I want to check real quick... <clears throat> I want to see if this was uh, Thelma or if this was pre-Thelma. I think this it was is, Thelma. This, it was. It was Thelma.
0: Yeah, I, I noted her in the credits. I was like, oh, cool, it's a Thelma.
1: Yeah. So this is this is edited by Thelma Schoonmaker, who is his longtime collaborator, and I think they just have a way their their editing rhythms. There's there's comedy built into how they edit the film, which I think is is. Th- it always adds a bit of levity to his, his movies, especially when the one they're doing, you know, really heavy material like, like in, you know, Goodfellas and stuff like that. Like that that lightness and the the you know, the rhythm of the editing plays into that. I
0: think their first movie together was Raging Bull. I could be wrong, but yeah, another I mean we talked about De Niro and Scorsese as being a really potent couple. Marty and, and Thelma is another wonderful uh, combination that the world is better off for this would have been if we didn't talk about this it would have been a huge mea for next week what I'm about to say uh, we touched on it a tiny bit early on but we really got to talk about the ending of this film and like how disappointing it is to believe it and the fact that this shit works Yeah, and that the American culture gets obsessed with this story and it ends in up catapulting him to fame and he gets a two and a half year slap on the wrist minimum security sentence. And then he comes out of prison and he's got a million dollar book deal. He's got a movie coming out. He's got a talk show. Yeah. And it's such a sickening ending in such a powerful way that is so much more devastating than something like the Joker or if Jerry Lewis's idea of there being a a killing at the end of the film. While they sound darker, in a way, this is more depressing because it says something very scathing about our society and our obsession with fame and kind of clickbaity, obviously long before that term existed. Right. But our obsession with these bizarre stories that generate this perverse version of fame, and we seem to fall for it over and over again, and it's incredibly frustrating, Yeah, and uh, this movie really hits that in a in the perfect tone of just like ugh it's a sickening ending. Yeah. It makes you crack a wry smile but it's devastating at the same time.
1: I kind of took this movie as confronting the idea of the American dream in that it you know there's this belief Held among Americans, especially at, around this time in Reagan era America of like you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you work hard, you you make the right connections, you hustle and you will achieve success. And this is like the, the perversion of that, of like someone who takes from that the message of, oh, so I just got to harass this guy until I get my shot. You know, it. it as I'm saying this, it's really reminding me of uh, the movie Nightcrawler, mm. you know, with Jake Gyllenhaal, where it's like, I remember the ads, but I've never seen it. You've never seen Nightcrawler? Oh, man, never we seen should consider that for the board. That would be a great addition. And, I would consider it. I'm going to put one. it on the maybe list right now. Yeah, and it would connect with this movie really, really interestingly. But it's another one about, like, a, a person who is, you know, kind of hustle culture. Like, I'm I'm going to go, like, just, like make my own success you know make my own luck in the world um and and to me like this movie is a little bit of that where it's like this guy completely misunderstands what it means to achieve success and what you actually should be doing to get there if that's what you actually want and it's it's how a someone with you know a little bit of a screw loose like that like what can happen if that gets perverted and then like how much we revel in watching that train crash in front of us and like, you know, we we elevate that. And and, mm-hmm. and it's really yeah, it's it was a really it like I said, like this movie feels like it could have come out today and, and be just as relevant.
0: Absolutely. And it does have so much to say too about about fame. And just like like Jerry Lewis's life in this film seems so lonely yeah. like every time like he's he's having a, a meal or something he's by himself like he's in he's in a in a sort of prison an inescapable like a he gets heckled wherever he goes and hounded so like, the movie i think is saying something along the lines of who the hell would want to be famous only crazy like people. it seems it seems like a nightmare yeah and then it goes to the other side and we see the effects of fame on like quote unquote normal people or people who are not well adjusted and it's it's super destructive over there too and then you have these certain types of people who want fame more than they want to be good at something and de niro i think certainly falls into that category where i don't think he cares about being a great comedian he just cares about being famous and that's what he wants to be is famous not a comic yeah And that always seems like the silliest approach to go about in life. If you're you're going for fame, that's probably going to be some level of disastrous. Uh, But then, of course, it ends up working for him and he gets what he wants. And it's so it's so sickening. But, yeah, it definitely portrays, to me anyway, a sad look at fame and like who would want anything to do with
1: that. It really hit hard for me this week because I uh, I'm ashamed to admit this, but. As we've said before, this is a safe space. We'll be vulnerable. It is. Uh it is a safe I, space. I uh, I have been watching a trashy ass reality show this week in the background while just playing video games and stuff. Cause like I I don't know, I tend to do that where I'll just like throw something mindless on in the background as background noise because I you know, anyway. Don't need to don't, dig into my, to my justify. Free time. I'm justifying. We all enjoy trashy shows from time but to time. But it's uh it's it's called f- uh, well, it's not called this. I was going to say it's called Fuckboy Island, but it's F-Boy Island.
0: F-Boy on, Island, on dude. That. You got on it finally. I, I finally told you got about on that.
1: Is that the one you told me? I couldn't remember. Yeah. I get all these confused. There's Love Island. There's, you know, there's... I like mean, And on your
0: defense, things. it was like a year ago that I told you okay. about this. It was okay. a while. But yeah, I've I've watched that show, man. You're preaching to the choir.
1: Well, yeah. So I was watching that, and that show is... when <laughs> It's so funny that I started watching that like the same week I watched this because... Same deal. It's a bunch of sociopaths that like, you know, are trying to cultivate Instagram followers to be, you know, influencers. And and like, it's all, yeah. it's all a play for attention and fame. And it's sickening. It's gross. And, yeah. b- but then you like watch this movie and you're like, yeah, that's exactly what these people are doing. You're totally right. You're totally
0: right. Like these, that's a great comparison. Social media influencers and people who want to try to get fame that way are just like just like these two characters. That's what they want in Leech. life. And we all, I'm sure to varying degrees want to be validated by other people. So I, I, I don't want to over vilify people who pursue fame, but it just seems, it does seem pretty ugly. But fame as like the only business. goal is, yeah, is really what is, is gross. fascinating to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, Anyway, I, th- I yeah, everyone that watched this movie this week, if you haven't watched F Boy Island, it's a great companion piece. Great, great, great companion piece.
0: <laughs> Go from a Scorsese masterpiece to F Boy Island with Nikki your host Glazer Nikki dumping Glazer. water
1: on on washboard abs. <laughs> yeah,
0: God, that show is so bad but so delicious. <laughs>
1: All right, well, I think that'll bring us to the end here on The King of Comedy. We both loved this movie. Uh, definitely Dope. check it out. I think it's about time we get something else on the board, and if I'm not mistaken, this is your week, Jared.
0: This is my week, and I had a couple of contenders buzzing around, but I've narrowed it down with one exception. If you have seen this movie, I don't think I want to put it on the board Okay. because it's a very recent film and you would have just seen it. So if that's the case, we might kick it down the can to another day, or I might go to one of my B-sides. But recently, you and I were talking about Groundhog Day. Mm. And I was mentioning a, a film that came out recently that was like similar sort of time travel loop sort of thing, or so I think. And I could not think of the name of this film. I'm working with this editor, this guy Scott, And he mentioned the movie randomly to me. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Was this that movie about the person who goes back in time? And he's like, yeah. So I think that's the movie I want to do. Have you seen Last Night in Soho?
1: I have not. I'm willing to do it for sure. Yeah, it's the only Edgar Wright movie I haven't seen.
0: See, that was one of the things that got me excited. I didn't know it was Edgar Wright. I love Edgar Wright. And I was like, oh, shit. It's a a different choice for us. It's a very modern film. Yeah. I don't know much about it. Um, it should be readily available. Um, it's on HBO I think Max would, right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would be kind of a, an interesting, fun choice. And it kind of came up organically with yeah. our chat about Groundhog Day and this, and my, my new friend Scott mentioning it. So I was like,
1: I think it'd be a fun one. Let's do it. I'm into it. Yeah, I like that choice. I think it's interesting in that I know that the reception of it was extremely mixed. You know, so there was a lot of highs, a lot of lows. So, like, I'm curious to see where we both land on it. And given that it's it's a recent one, yeah, I like this. I I think this is a a unique entry on the board for us uh, as far as like the current landscape of the board.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a good choice. I like it. What number will that uh, that one be there? That
1: will go in at number fourteen in place of the King of Comedy. So we've got. I'll be excited when we hit it. Night in soho i know it's on hbo max right now um we'll see where it's at when we actually hit it which could be now could be 10 years from now yeah who knows (laughs) but no i love that choice um cool well let's do another recap here of the board we gave it up top with uh the previous entry but let's give the current board At number one, we've got You Can Count On Me. At number two, we've got Ex Machina. Number three, The Right Stuff. Number four, The Big Sleep. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, The Sixth Sense. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, The Fifth Element. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number ten, Big Daddy. Number eleven, Vertigo. Number twelve, The Straight Story. Number thirteen, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number fourteen, Last Night in Soho. Number fifteen, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number sixteen, Bottle Rocket. Number seventeen, The Blair Witch Project. Number eighteen, Waking life number 19 face off and number 20 kung fu hustle
0: nice reading dude and that last night in soho is a long title gets
1: a little gummy there in the midsection and you breezed through it like a champion doing my best doing my best yeah i uh i I feel like sometimes when i'm doing this list i feel like i'm like running down like a very narrow like board or something and i'm like (laughs) like like wobbling to either side as i sprint across it
0: yeah, it's like a Jerry Lewis comedy bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I just a quick question for you: um, Should I throw lefty or righty? What do you think? I've been doing lefty last like three weeks.
1: Lefty's been, been happy sending with the us to uh, the the deep end of the board. Why don't we switch it back up and see if the right brings us back to the front half? Cool. All
0: right, I'm gonna throw righty and I'm gonna aim for the bullseye. I don't I don't have confidence. Do you, that you ever I'm hit aim it, but-
1: for anything else?
0: Sometimes I just try to blur my eyes like a 3D art painting and just chuck (laughs) it because I really want it to be random. Jared really takes
1: this seriously, guys.
0: Yeah, and then other times I, like, try to pick a section that we don't seem to hit much and just get up in that region, you know? Uh, But this one I'm going to straight up aim for the bullseye and we'll see what we get. Do it. Nice. All right, I'll be right back. A serious question for you, man. Hit me with it. If I did not film it, does it count?
1: I think that's a question for you. Do you believe in your own uh, memory, or are you a uh, Rupert Pupkin type? Are you? Do you? Do you have a uh, un unreliable narrator, or are you reliable?
0: I I am reliable. I believe. I mean, who knows? I hope I'm not. I'm,
1: like that's guys. what I'm asking you. Are you a Rupert Pupkin? Are you? Uh, are, are, I am not
0: a pupkin. <laughs> I am not a pumpkin, but I also fear that it's a number we've hit a ton of times, but I need to let
1: that go. I gotta let that go. You're overthinking this. Yeah. All right. The number is 16. It is a number we've hit recently, but I'm down to do it. Number sixteen is bottle rocket. All right. Cool. I'll take a picture of what it is, but do you I want to redo get it or to the... do you want to stick with that?
0: I, let's stick with it. We gotta trust in the dart. Like I didn't film it, whatever. Fuck it, it it it, it, happened. it happened. Like I'd go bend over backwards to see the film of a filmmaker I really do not jive with. Generally, so like it's the real deal. <laughs> you can believe that. Wait, what was that? I'm not a big Wes Anderson guy.
1: I well, look, I mean, I'm not either. But it's part of why I wanted to put it on the board was because I'm. Oh, like, I like it. I want to. I want to get his like his introduction to filmmaking, basically in terms of like the world taking notice of Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um there's an interesting story as to like how the movie got made as well that I want to dig into. It's involving a lot of artists that I really enjoy like the the Wilson brothers and you know uh it also has a connection to James L Brooks who's somebody that we both really enjoy. So, yeah, oh, yeah. I thought it, I think it's going to be interesting. I'm excited to get yeah. to it.
0: I think it's a good choice. And um yeah, if I was ever going to lie and fake a dart throw, it would not be for this film. But I'm still excited for us to check it out. Like I think it'll be a fun conversation, and I we both have never seen it. Should be cool.
1: I will say though that the front half of the the board is very. Uh, it's gone for a while without harvesting. We'll say that. Uh, the, really? Yeah. I mean, we we've haven't hit a single digit number in a while. Let me look. The Last time we hit a single digit number was Alan Partridge, which was. Ooh, Not nine nine weeks ago. ago. It's interesting. I mean, hey, look, Dart works in mysterious ways.
0: We'll see where it takes us, man. You know, we just gotta trust it. And just doing a little uh little streaming check here. According to Google, we've got it on HBO Max, available for free, and then rentable for from two ninety nine to three ninety nine from a variety of spots. So should be pretty easy to check to, to track down.
1: Absolutely. Well, next week we'll cover Bottle Rocket. That'll do for our, our episode on The King of Comedy. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at Night. Artwork for the show was created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric.
0: Later. Sorry, Mark.